0: Hello, and welcome to another exclusive VJ Hemant podcast. We are a global open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, we bring you the first CLL session, an exclusive discussion featuring leading experts in CLL. John Gribbon of Bart's Cancer Institute, Barbara Eichhorst of the University of Cologne, Susan O'Brien of the University of California, and Matthew Davids of the Anna-Farber Cancer Institute. Our speakers discuss key updates in the diagnosis and treatment of CLL from the ASCO and HIHA 2020 virtual meetings, including frontline therapies, PTK inhibitors, the importance of MRD, as well as novel therapies in CLL.
1: Welcome, everybody, to the first of the CLL sessions on He Monk. I'm John Grubin from Bart's Cancer Center in London, and today I'm joined by my very good friends and colleagues, Susan O'Brien from University of California, Irvine, USA, Barbara Eichhorst from the University of Cologne and the German CLL Study Group in Germany, and Matt Davids from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Harvard Medical School in Boston, USA. Today, we're going to look at some key news and topics in a very active time in the research and treatment of CLL, with a lot of data and insight coming from a very exciting virtual EHA, which came hot on the heels of a virtual ASCO, so we're all getting used to virtual meetings. So let's just get straight in, because I think we've got a lot of of things to talk about. Let's start with uh, what we saw in terms of frontline therapy for CLL. So, Barbara, we, we saw updates from CLL 14 study, you, you're the German CLL study group obviously led this study. So obviously, you've had a great deal to time, of time to think about this this approach. So what did you take away from the update that we saw presented uh, at the meetings?
2: So the update of the CEL14 trial, just for remembering, that's a phase 3 trial in unfit patients. So there was no age cutoff, but patients with a certain comorbidity were included. And then we randomized between venetoclax plus obinituzumab for 12 months total versus clarmocil plus obinituzumab. And now the update after around 40 months showed, um, as expected, the progression-free survival has continued to be superior with the venetoclax plus obinituzumab arm But um, the new finding is that we see um, for patients separated according to the IGBH status that not only the PFS is significantly better in those patients with an unmutated IGBH status, but also now the curves are separating for the group of patients with mutated IGBH status. This is uh, also for clinical practice, I think this is very relevant because so far we still had the paradigm that chemoimmunotherapy is still an option in those patients with favorable cytogenetics. However, this trial um, shows now that after a relatively short observation time that there is also a benefit. The other, day, the other news, which we have seen already from last year, which is not so good, is that we see, again, in the very high-risk patient population of patients with TP53 mutation or deletion that um, also here the novel combination PFS is significantly worse in those patients. So, of course, it's better than with immunotherapy.
1: For Matt and Susan in the USA, do you see um, there being a place for a one-year fixed duration therapy in this approach? Do you think it is something that will be attractive to patients in the U.S.?
3: Yeah, I certainly think so. I mean, we've had this now for over a year uh, approved and paid for in the US. So it's uh, a popular choice amongst my patients. Uh, They like the idea of the time-limited therapy. And I think particularly for the mutated IGHV patients, we're going to see a very long PFS from that one year of therapy. I guess one of the questions I had for Barbara is it seems like the unmutated IGHV patients who got the venetoclax, obinutuzumab, may be starting to progress a bit more. I don't think there's a statistically significant difference yet, but how do you view that population?
2: Yeah I, I agree with you Matt. So um, as a matter of concern we know that these are the residual CLL cells that they will proliferate faster than among those patients the mutated IGVH status so um, and therefore it's a question of how deep the remission will be. We have seen now data on um, the minimal residual disease measured by a newer method so-called next generation sequencing and we see a very deep remissions and probably in there are also unmutated patients among those, and probably also here progression-free survival will be very long. But um, the less deep the response to this combination therapy is, the faster we are expected to see also here again the relapse. So uh, so the curve looks very good for patients with mutated IGBH status. For the unmutated, this is um, obviously not a curative treatment.
1: You, I'd imagine that um, in California the idea of Uh, novel therapies and fixed duration would be something and chemo-free would be something very attractive. But are you, particularly for that higher group patients, do you think one year of therapy is enough in that setting? We didn't see the mutated and unmutated split that same way in the Murano data, did we?
4: No, we didn't. And it it is an interesting question. I I think this, this question has actually come up before, in particular when we saw the update on the Murano data in the relapse setting, uh, the, vent, the trial of BR versus venetoclax rituximab. And we saw that the majority of patients who progressed very soon after stopping treatment and remembering that in that relapse trial, treatment was for two years rather than one. But what we saw is that the early relapses were clearly very much enriched for 17p deleted or p53 mutated. And I've heard many discussions uh, among CLL physicians about whether they, in the relapse setting, would actually stop therapy on their patients with high-risk disease. And I think the fact that, as Barbara said, we're beginning to see the curve separating in the frontline, probably that same discussion would be relevant to the frontline, albeit, I I think it's important to point out that at three years, there was still no median PFS in that high-risk group. So they're still doing quite well and maintaining remission for a number of years uh, off of therapy, which is which is still a pretty attractive concept for those patients. But I I think it really raises the question of, in that group, would you stop or would you keep going? Um, I remember that when John Seymour was asked on the Murano trial, well, maybe you should have continued and waited till those patients became MRD undetectable. He raised the point that in most of those patients, their MRD levels either had plateaued or actually going up. So he made the point that he didn't think that high-risk group would have become MRD-undetectable, but still doesn't answer the question. You can't answer it. Well, maybe they wouldn't have become MRD-undetectable, but would their emissions have lasted longer if we would continued therapy? And I think this raises the same question. I think a
1: view about thinking about more continuous therapy is the perfect segue into talking about BTK inhibitors, in which of course we're used to giving uh, continuous therapy. So as always, Susan, some of this isn't new, but it's also new to see the continued update on the abrutinib, acalabrutinib data. It's always reassuring to see where the curves are. What did did you make of what you'd seen, particularly thinking, focusing right now on the upfront setting of any, any surprises, any disappointments for you in what we saw?
4: No, I wouldn't say disappointments. I mean, we saw um, not at this meeting, but we saw recently that the five-year update from the Resonate 2 trial, which was Ibrutinib versus Cranbusil, that was the trial that gave the frontline label to Ibrutinib, that the update from that trial shows that at five years, 70% of people are still in remission, which is phenomenal. It's just great. But as you pointed out, that's with continuous therapy. What we did see uh, was an update on the Elevate trial, which was the trial of Acalabrutinib uh, plus or minus obinutuzumab versus clarabisilobinutuzumab, and that also is not time limited, just like with ibrutinib. And what that update clearly showed was that, not surprisingly, as Barbara said, um, the I, the A, either cala arm uh, produced significantly better results than um, clarabisilobinutuzumab. And again, I don't think that that was very surprising. It was interesting that the acala um, curve was a little bit higher, the PFS curve, than the acalabrutinib single agent, but it's important to note that those differences, so far at least, are not statistically significant. Um, that has been approved as a frontline regimen in the U.S., and interestingly, the label is sort of interesting because what the label says here is it's, it can be given either way. So they really leave it up to the physician as to whether they want to, to give the antibody with it. But nevertheless, the PFS curve looked great, uh, above 80% at two, at two years. So these are clearly going to be very durable remissions. One of the pe- potential advantages of using acalabrutinib is that the cardiovascular side effects seem to be decreased. So there does appear to be less atrial fibrillation and less hypertension. I will point out that it's important if we're going to compare across drugs without a head-to-head comparison, which we don't have yet, that we know from ibutinib that the hypertension can occur any e- each year of onset. It can occur late, so we can have a patient on drug for five years and they can start to develop hypertension. So it's going to be important when we're comparing those hypertension rates across drugs that we compare at the same, at the same uh, time point in terms of the follow-up. But nevertheless, I do think the data suggests that the, the cardiovascular side effects are clearly reduced with acalabrutinib. So we do have an option to use that um, here in the States.
1: Now, you, of course, you raised the issue that I was going to raise, if you hadn't already raised it, of the interesting finding on Elevate that the addition of the anti-CD20 antibody obinutuzumab here did appear to do a little bit better. We thought that issue had been put to bed with the results from the Alliance trial that showed no impact from um, the addition of rituximab. And, of course, we'd seen the Illuminate data where the... Um, the addition of abinituzumab to abrutinib showed good results. But of course, there was no th- abrutinib only arm in that study. But I think most of us interpreted it to think that the abinituzumab didn't look like it was adding a huge amount to what we'd seen from the Resonate 2 trial alone. So the question was out there. But do you think uh, the results of that data uh, as, as shown are going to make physicians uh, add abinituzumab into a acalabrutinib in the front line?
4: I, I doubt it without more follow-up. Particularly because physicians who are used to prescribing BTK inhibitors are used to starting the patient on the drug and not having to start anything IV. So I don't think that data will compel people to use it, but it will be very interesting if with longer follow-up those curves continue to separate, and then it, of course will raise the issue that maybe it's we can't assume it's a class effect, rather it's an antibody effect, that maybe with a more potent antibody um, there will be a difference. but You're right. I think, uh, to me, I was actually a little bit surprised when I first saw that data, because we did know that at least with rituximab, there's been two randomized trials now clearly showing no benefit in terms of PFS with the addition of rituximab to ibrutinib. Um, So we'll have to see with with the newer antibody, maybe it'll be different.
3: Okay. I think it does speak to the fact that not all BTK inhibitors or CD20 antibodies are alike. And I think we, we could have potentially predicted the results with abrutinib and rituximab based on some of the antagonism that's been seen in, in preclinical models there. So perhaps by using the more specific BTK inhibitor and a more potent CD20 antibody, you really can have some synergy there. But I think as Susan okay. says, time will tell based on whether that PFS curve stays up. Well, Matt, thinking of
1: synergy and thinking of combinations, that goes us nicely into the next things I wanted to talk about because, of course, we saw lots of presentations on a whole variety of doublet, triplet type uh, therapies of combining BTK inhibitors, venetoclax plus or minus uh, antibodies. So, lots of trial data. We could spend the whole night talking about just the trials that we saw presented. But anything that's, that you took away from the meeting specifically, you wanted to focus on.
3: Sure. So, you know, when I, when I think of combination approaches with novel agents, I kind of think, think of three main categories. So one would be, as you're alluding to, the sort of novel-novel combinations, abrutinib and venetoclax. Uh, a second would be adding in a CD20 antibody. You know, we heard great data from Barbara on CLL14 with venetoclax and a CD20, but thinking of adding CD20 plus abrutinib and venetoclax. And then we shouldn't forget about our old friend chemoimmunotherapy in combination with novel agents. Yeah, I was going to um, come back
1: to that thought. I mean, I thought it was dead, and it seems to be trying to rise from the grave here. Well,
3: why don't, yeah. why don't we start with that? So, you know, we, we had published our study <laughs> on abrutinib plus FCR last year, and we reported very high rates of undetectable MRD in the bone marrow. Uh, and the French group uh, also published their Philo uh, CLL7 study shortly thereafter and presented an update at this EHA meeting of, of their data set, uh, which continues to look very compelling. Uh, their approach is using abrutinib and obinutuzumab uh, for a lead-in period, and then if patients don't achieve a CR and undetectable MRD, then they do the combination of abrutinib with FC and obinutuzumab, and they've really shown some outstanding results in terms of depth of response, also about an 80% rate of undetectable uh, MRD in the bone marrow, and at this update, they showed some three-year progression-free survival data uh, with very few progression events, And they also showed some interesting MRD data, uh, suggesting that those patients who achieved undetectable MRD were able to maintain that off therapy for, for a few years now. So you know, I think that it's, it's a fairly small group of, of young, fit CLL patients who are still eligible for this type of intensive approach. But if you had a patient in their 50s who wanted a, a very high rate of undetectable MRD and the potential for this functional cure that we've seen previously with FCR even on its own, uh, I think this is becoming a reasonable option to consider. But but certainly needs to be compared also in phase three studies. Uh, Probably the, the more uh, popular studies have been the ones combining novel agents only and trying to get rid of chemoimmunotherapy. There's certainly a lot of enthusiasm in the field for, for that approach. And we saw an update of the Captivate study uh, at this EHA meeting. Uh, reminder, this is the combination of abrutinib plus venetoclax in the frontline setting with an abrutinib lead-in to, to help cytoreduce and they confirmed again that this does reduce the risk of tumor lysis syndrome from the venetoclax. And then they do a combination period of abrutinib plus venetoclax and again showed very nice undetectable MRD rates with reasonably good tolerability. Uh, they do see some neutropenia and, and infections with this combination. You see some of the typical abrutinib related toxicities, but nothing that really seems untoward in terms of the, the combination. Uh, so I think it's a very appealing regimen being all oral uh, and fairly, fairly straightforward to administer. And uh, it, it's still a bit early in that study in the sense that we're very curious how the patients will do in this MRD randomization uh, that comes later on. So we'll, we'll eagerly await those results in the future. And then the last one that I just wanted to mention briefly in that third category is the, uh, the GIVE study, which we were seeing for the first time at the EHA meeting. This is a really crucial study because it's looking at the TP53 aberrant patients, either with deletion 17P or mutation in TP53. These are our highest risk CLL patients with the, the greatest unmet need. And this study exclusively looked at about 40 of those patients with the triplet of ibrutinib, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab. And again, saw very deep remissions in this population. The, the follow-up is, is short at this point. Uh, but given the, the high rates of undetectable MRD, it, it looks promising that this could even be a, a feasible regimen as a time-limited regimen, even for these high-risk patients. Uh, but of course, as a single-arm study, we're going to need comparisons. And we have studies underway now to, to look at IVO in the, in the U.S. as well as in the U.K. and elsewhere. So let me
1: come on to you on that. So, um, it, combinations of chemotherapy with novel agents, step forward or step back? What's, what's your view on, 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 on that kind of use of combinations? Or do you think we should be moving towards really looking at novel targeted therapies?
4: Yeah, I do. I think the combinations look really potent. And, you know, let's, let's get to the point. What we would really like to do is cure this disease, right? And so MRD undetectability is not the same as cure, but I would say it's necessary for cure. It's a first step. So anything that we can do to get that rate up and then have more durable remissions, I think, is, is, is going along the way towards trying to get a cure for everybody. Um, that being said, there is also, and it is an assumption right now, I have to say, sorry, the assumption that if we have these time-limited combinations with very high MRD undetectability, then if patients do relapse down the line, they will still be sensitive to the drugs that we gave them, and so we're not kind of using up two drugs at the same time, which I think has been a concern. I actually put a fair number of patients on the Captivate trial, and many of the patients said to me, well, wait a minute. If you're going to use both those drugs, what are you going to do then when my disease gets back? So even patients were were wondering that. So as I said, it's an assumption because we don't have very many relapses off of these uh, combo trials because they're so new. And uh, hopefully it's an assumption that will be correct. I think there's a good rationale to assume it. Um, But So that makes me not so worried about, oh, well, if I use two drugs up front, then, then what am I going to do if the patient is not you know, put into a real long-lasting remission from this regimen.
1: Yeah, now Barbara, the one area in which of course chemotherapy might still have a role and one that the German Cell study group has looked at is, is a debulking strategy, particularly if you're thinking about using venetoclax to try to take those high-risk TLS patients to debulks. What, what's, your, what's your view? I mean, I know you've been involved in some of those clinical trials, but what's your view on that as an approach? When I kind of talk to some of my patients about it, they're like, "Oh, but I thought the whole point of this was to avoid chemotherapy."
4: Yeah,
2: yeah, you're completely right, John. Uh, I think it depends on on the patients. I would hesitate to expose our patients with an already known TP fifty three mutation aberration. I mean, so those patients usually respond also for a short period of time, but the risk is very high. um, That you, uh, uh, in most cases, you just decrease the CLL cell number, which do not carry TP fifty three mutation operation with the good risk CLL cells. Um, But on the other hand, if you have um, patients with a really high tumor burden and um, you give those one or two causes of Benamastin alone, you're starting with a low, really low tumor burden on those patients. And um, from our trials, the observation, for example, for combination with obinituzumab was that obinituzumab was much better tolerated with respect also to tumor lysis syndrome, also to infusion um, associated reactions. Um, with respect to um, the, the overall response rate, my colleague Paula Kama made here meta-analysis from those different trials and it seems that the, uh, as expected that these one to two cycles of debiking treatment do not add something on the deep, um, on deepening the response or to the overall response rate. But however, I think particularly when a physician is not so, um, not so used using venetoclax or obinutuzumab, where tumor syndrome may occur, this could be a, a step forward in order to reduce the lymph node burden and um, therefore to have a safer start of, than of the combination therapy. But as you said before, um, patients who are really aiming for chemotherapy-free regimen and they probably would like to avoid. So I think with respect to toxicity, this one or two cycles do not add so much toxicity.
1: We've spent a lot of time uh, talking about MRD and its potential importance now. Lots of the, the clinical trials, particularly with uh, with anetoclax, have looked at fixed-duration therapies, but lots of the academic trials have been driving towards MRD negativity as an endpoint. Clearly, I think all four of us believe that having a patient in a deep MRD negative state does act as a surrogate for a long progression free survival And Susan, you've already said it, we're all aiming eventually for a cure, and that's going to be a necessary step to get there. So what are your views? Let's start with you, Matt. So how important is it to get a patient into that MRD negative state?
3: So I do think it really depends both on the patient and the specific treatment and the, and the paradigm that you're using. So, I mean, we are talking recently you know, in the last few minutes about these time-limited regimens. And, and there, I think MRD attainment you know, is crucial because you want to get the deepest possible remission because you know once you're off therapy, the, the disease may start to, to come back. And so the deeper the remission, the longer it's going to take for the disease to come back. But in contrast, if you're using a, a continuous therapy like a BTK inhibitor, then it's not really important at all to get to undetectable MRD patients we know can do very well. And a partial remission with plenty of detectable MRD for many years, uh, but they probably wouldn't be able to, to stop that therapy for, for a long period of time. So I, I think you know, if you're thinking about an, an old, old patient who maybe goes on a BTK inhibitor for, for several years, that, that might be a very nice palliative therapy for them. But if you're talking about a young, fitter patient, particularly if they have higher risk disease markers, there I think you know, targeting undetectable MRD with a time-limited regimen is, is a good goal.
1: Mr. Susan, you already alluded to the issue about what you might do in a patient who's been on a fixed duration therapy. You measure mineral residual disease, which probably lots of us are in a position to do, but lots of physicians in the community probably don't do at all. So you've got groups of patients who are going to be stopped with no idea what the MRD level is. and then, But if you're working in an academic center, you've probably got access to it. What do you, what is your approach to thinking about a patient who remains MRD positive at the end of therapy? Would would you look to continue venetoclax afterwards, or if you were on, for instance, a Murano approach, or how how do you think you and how do you think that might differ from clinicians that you know that, that refer patients and talk to you about how to manage their patients?
4: It's an interesting question, and I think if I was going to go that route, what I probably what I mean by that route is a, a trying to make a decision, say I was going to use venetoclax venetuzumab up front, and I'm thinking, well, maybe if the patient has detectable MRD, I don't want to stop at 12 months. I think it would be hard to make a decision with only having the 12-month time point. So what I'm getting at is that, you know, maybe I would do it at, on peripheral blood, not on bone marrow, at six months or nine months, and, if the traje- and maybe go by the trajectory. And I'm a little bit thinking out loud here because, as I said, I actually haven't had to do this. I have just recently started a couple of people on benetuximab, but like within the past month. So if I was going to do it, maybe I would get an MRD assay on peripheral blood, which is not too difficult to do at um, you know six months or nine months. And if the if the trajectory was going down, mm, that might tempt me to to treat a bit longer and see if I could get them completely negative. And then if the trajectory was kind of flat, maybe I'd say, well, this is the best I'm going to get. And again, this is Let me clarify. I'm not talking about 17P or P53 deleted patient. I'm talking about somebody that a priori we don't necessarily assess as high risk. Maybe I would do it that way. But again, I'm really just thinking out loud. I I wonder if anybody in this group has actually gotten somebody off protocol, let's say, to 12 months and then had to decide what to do. That hasn't happened to me yet
1: a lot of the ongoing German study groups are using really, you know, triple combination therapies right up front. Susan's already alluded to the fact that some patients are already talking about, gosh, you know, what what do we do if it relapses? But of course, the whole goal here is to hopefully drive people to very deep um, remissions and have them hopefully off therapy for a long period of time. And then, of course, our hope is that those patients will then respond uh, in in the future. How has the, the study group kind of, talking about the very large number of clinicians around uh, in very different settings that take part in your study group. Uh, is how has how your group thought about um, using all of these agents up front in combination?
2: Um, yeah, as you said, John, and also Susan, there is the concern of um, when I use already the best available drugs in frontline as with the GIF regimen, um, what options to, does the patient have in the relapse setting? And we have a few data from the morale trial. We have a few data from the c 14 trial that probably um, re-exposure, for example, with venetoclax, and of course, we have also data from the Australian group that re-exposure with venetoclax obviously works, that at least patients respond again a second time. What we, I think we will have to evaluate now in the new future is the so-called PFS2. So we will have to look at the response duration then to the second-line um, second treatment, particularly if we use the novel-novel combination and the frontline therapy. I think this will be one of the key questions in the future with respect to sequencing treatment in CLL optimally in order to gain decades of life for the patients then. With respect to the triple combination, as um, Matthew um, alluded, um, showed again, um, or talked already about that, um, however, we have to keep in mind that this, with respect to side effects from this trial, also a little bit from the trial from Ohio State, who evaluated also this combination in frontline therapy, um, the triple combination has really some toxicities. We it also tends in our phase three frontline trial we see some more infections, uh, not surprisingly. In, during the first year of treatment so we will have to look at definitely the benefit by using this triple combination maybe even also with the, the doublet combination as the captivate trial I think we will also have to look at your longer follow-up with respect to toxicities as well
1: the way that the drugs became available we had we had you know we had ibrutinib first and then Venetoclax came along so we had a lot more data on using veneticlax in the Ibrutinib. Um, refractory or, or intolerant patient population but of course we've seen a lot more data now about using ibrutinib after venetoclax is there anything that you see in terms of the sequencing of these drugs that makes you concerned about using one drug before the other or do you think it's up to choice in terms of fixed duration versus continuous therapy
4: No, there's nothing that really concerns me because most of the data that's emerged has been very good. And what I mean is you're absolutely right. When venetoclaxo-binituzumab was first approved here in the States, I was a little bit cautious about using it for exactly that reason, because we had plenty of data that you could use venetoclax in patients failing ibrutinib, which was the only BTK inhibitor we had at the time and that those patients would ha- go on to have good responses and pretty durable responses. And keep in mind, in, in those original trials, those were very heavily pretreated patients that had had four higher lines of chemo before they even got to ibrutinib. And they still got, according to the published data, about a two-year PFS with venetoclax. What we were lacking, as you already alluded to, is there was almost no data about using ibrutinib or acalibrutinib post-venetoclax. Uh, because most of the patients going on the Venetoclax trials, both the original phase one, the Murano, they had not seen a BTK inhibitor. Mm. But you know, we've seen emerging data uh, come out. Probably the biggest cohort that we've seen is Anthony Motto's real world data, um, where they, he has the biggest cohort. I can't remember the exact number, maybe somebody else does, Uh, but it was, I think 40 something. Um, And their response rate was quite good. It was, uh, these are people who had. Uh, progressed um, after venetoclax but had not seen a BTK inhibitor. Um, and he had a, the biggest series so far and the response rate was quite good and it looked like those remissions are very durable. So that's very reassuring. It's also interesting what we don't have data on, as I alluded to all of the original data from going one way to the other, is very, very uh, heavily pretreated patients. If anything, I have to believe that if you have a patient who only got Ibrutinib and then gets venetoclax or vice versa, they're probably going to do a lot better than the numbers, the PFS numbers that we're quoting now, because those, are all, those were all done in people who, ha- who were heavily pretreated with chemo. So I would think arguably the data going either way would even be better sort of in this day and age where nobody's giving somebody three rounds of chemo before they use a small molecule. But to me, the data is quite encouraging in both directions. And so I would make my frontline choice, as you just said, more based on the pros and cons for that patient of venetoclax, time-limited therapy, BTK inhibitor, side effect profile, et cetera. We've
1: talked a lot about BTK inhibitors, BCL2 inhibitors, which of course we think are our most effective. and. Uh, novel agents, but any, no, re, any other novel uh, type therapies, anything coming out that, that's emerging that you kind of caught your attention at these meetings?
3: Yeah. So I, I do want to um, kind of build off of what Barbara was saying with some of the toxicities observed with the IVO triplet, uh, because I think there is some emerging data now suggesting that maybe a more specific BTK inhibitor could be better tolerated, particularly as part of a triplet combination. So we had presented some initial data at the ASH meeting on our AVO triplet with acalabrutinib. And at this EHA meeting, Jake Sumerai presented data for the ZVO regimen. We haven't talked about xanabrutinib yet today, but this is another specific kind of second generation BTK inhibitor that seems to be very well tolerated from a cardiovascular perspective. And uh, you know, I think that it's you know, as you start to combine more and more drugs together, these, these toxicities become important. And so the data that Jake showed looked very good. It's, it's 37 patients from, from uh, a couple of centers primarily, uh, so it's a small study. Uh, but they showed relatively low rates of infection, even with this triplet therapy. Uh, I think only about 15% uh, grade 3 or higher neutropenia. Uh, and so you know, very low cardiovascular events, as you'd expect. And, and they saw about three-quarters of their patients achieving undetectable MRD in the bone marrow. Uh, and actually, one of the things that I find novel about their study is that they allow patients to discontinue if they can get to an undetectable MRD state after just eight cycles of combination therapy. Uh, so that, that is nice for patients to potentially have a, a shorter regimen. Uh, obviously, we need to see if that proves to be durable, but presumably there'll be some durability if they're able to get to that undetectable MRD state. So I think Xanabrutinib is another drug to watch, uh, does not yet have a label in CLL, um, but likely headed in that direction. Uh, I think the other thing we've seen at at these meetings uh, over the last year or so is updates on the CAR T-cell data Mm. for CLL. As as we think about using three of our best drugs up front, it is sort of natural to think if if we had a patient who did become refractory to these great novel agents that we have, is there a cellular therapy that we could use? Uh, And CAR T-cell certainly could potentially fill that role. Of course, the CAR-T cell story kind of got off the ground with with CLL to begin with, but then it's been a bit of a challenge since then. Yeah, a lot of the single-agent CAR-T studies have shown 30%, 35% CR rate, so much lower than we expect uh, in other diseases like DLBCL, where there's been an approval. Uh, we have seen data on the JCAR-17 uh, presented by Tanya Siddiqui uh, and others, uh, which has shown about a 45% CR rate with, with that product, including patients who had been through both brutinib and venetoclax, so that does look promising. And I think there's some intriguing data now coming out of a variety of places, including the Hutch, uh, looking at a combination of abrutinib with CAR-T, uh, you know, potentially having some disease control with the abrutinib, but also, interestingly, potentially enhancing the activity of those T-cells through the ITK-mediated effect of, of abrutinib. Uh And so I think it'll be very interesting to see how those data mature in, in the near future.
1: I, I guess we have alluded to the fact that you know that, that the group of patients that, that you stood out as not doing quite as well as you perhaps hoped with the... CLL14 data, particularly when you consider that venetoclax was first approved for TP53 mutated patients, 17p deleted patients, that um, that the group of patients with TP53 abnormalities, and particularly those with complex karyotypes, are, are still the groups of patients that look as if we're not getting towards the curative approach we've been looking at. And those might be the patients that go towards uh, CAR-T approaches. And we already know from experience in transplant, the cellular therapies do appear able to overcome those sorts of groups of patients. And I think, as you've said already, Matt, the the addition of BTK inhibitors into this to immunomodulate the activity, uh, you know, is something that needs to be looked at. There's a whole variety, of course, of ways in which the ibrutinib or acalabrutinib or xanabrutinib could be used, one at the time of collecting the cells, but then also potentially continuing that therapy after the cells are given back. So lots of experimental approaches still to be examined in that patient. So um, with that said, is is transplant dead? Is CAR T cells going to take it over? Are we going to do away with transplant? So Barbara, what's, what's your view on the role of transplant in CLL?
2: Yeah, so actually, probably as all of you in our centers, the number of CLL patients we transplanted in the last years was going down to zero. However, what we see now, what is of course concern is that we have an increasing rate of patients with Richter's transformation, probably selecting those TP53 containing CLL clones where we know they have a higher risk for transforming into diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So usually right now the transplantations we are going to do are the Richter's transformation and um, now very few patients being refractory to everything And in, in case we cannot get those patients on a CAR T-cell trial, um, so, um, And so the, the key here I think is that we still have then a treatment option how we can get those patients into remission order then to do the allogenic stem cell transplantation um, that's one of the key things, and therefore, I think it will not, it's not dead, um, but it will be done on a very low level. And therefore, I think it's more important that um, patients are really transferred to those centers who have experience in getting those patients really to transplantation, because these will be very few patients and also dealing with the possible Richter transformation.
1: So, Matt, you've got some interesting approaches you're looking at in Richter's at, uh, at Dana Farber. Uh, what, what's your current thought about how we should be? Tackling and uh, uh, Richter's.
3: Yeah, so at the ASCO meeting, I gave a presentation on our study of Venetoclax plus dose adjusted REPOC chemoimmunotherapy. And the idea here is, is using Venetoclax as a chemosensitizing agent to allow, allow these cells to respond better to the chemoimmunotherapy. And, and we found actually that we had very deep responses, even in patients with TP53 aberrant CLL uh, who developed Richter's. Uh, because the venetoclax, we think, does act downstream of, of TP53 right at the level of the mitochondria. Uh, and so we, you know, we saw by intent to treat half of our patients achieving a, a CR, uh, most of the patients who wanted to then move on to transplant were able to do so. And so at least as a bridge to transplant, this type of intensive approach uh, may make sense for some patients, particularly if they're younger and fit. You know, a challenge, of course, is that many of our CL patients are not young and fit and can't tolerate our EPOC chemotherapy. And so there's, there's a number of other approaches that I think are, are promising that are being evaluated. I think the experience at the MD Anderson is interesting combining a Brutinib with PD-1 blockade. Uh, we've seen some interesting data uh, on that. So, you know, I think that it'll be interesting to see if CAR-T has activity against the Richters itself. We haven't seen much data on that yet, um, but certainly that's a, a promising approach as well
1: anybody who's working from any company, could you please stop uh, excluding uh, any circulating CLL from studies with Richter's? Because it makes it very, very difficult and very mm-hmm. unfair for the patients. But uh, so Susan, anything anything we've missed discussing here that kind of caught you from the meeting? Or do you think we've kind of covered what you thought were the highlights?
4: Oh, yeah. I think you did a great job covering pretty much, pretty much everything um, that I can think of. I guess the question would be, are there any interesting new molecules? Mm. Uh, one thing we didn't cover are the non-covalent BTK inhibitors, but I don't yeah. actually think we saw any update at that meeting. So if we were sticking to the meeting, no. But I think those are very interesting in terms of having an option for patients uh, failing a BTK inhibitor uh, that would allow you to save, sort of if you will, save venetoclax um, because if those drugs work, and the preliminary data in the phase one certainly suggests that they, they, are, they do work in the setting of the BPK mutation, and if you look at the Ohio State data, it looks like the majority of patients with CLL who develop clinical resistance will have a mutation, not all, but, but many. Um, it seems like those are a very interesting new class of drugs that I, I think may be very promising.
1: Well, of course, you had the huge experience of working in CML, so you're very used to the idea of sequencing the use of inhibitors and the the setting of inhibitors and then knowing which inhibitor to go to in the setting of particular mutations. Can you see a time that we start to do this in CLL? I would suggest, of course, that we then be getting assays, you've already alluded to, you know, uh, John Burns group, of course, and Jennifer Wyash done a lot of work in terms of sequencing a lot of their patients, but most of us are not in the position to be looking for sequencing routinely the way they are there. But can you see a time that eventually, if more and more of these agents become available, that these assays will have to become available the way that we're used to doing for CML?
4: Yes, I think it could be. Of course, it will raise the practical question that if you detect the mutation and they're, and they're again, Ohio State data suggests that you can often detect it month, several months or up to nine months even before the disease shows clinical resistance. Is there actually any benefit in changing earlier? In CML, we know that there actually is. Um, in CLL, I think that would be an open question. Do you really need to check early? Because if you change early, I mean, intuitively, it kind of makes sense, right? That if you, you, you know there's a clone that's going to lead to resistant and that's a low-level clone, and you, enter in, you uh, intercede at that point in time, maybe the patient's going to do better. Uh, but just having the ability to know there's a mutation and having another drug to switch to, which we really already do because we have venetoclax, right? True. And yet yes. nobody's suggesting that we should be monitoring for the mutation. So in the, can I see a, a future where we are doing that? Yes. Do I think it's here now? Clearly no.
1: The other kind of class of drugs that are emerging. I didn't see much about it um, at this meeting, unless I just missed something in, in some of the thousands of posters there. But um, MCL one inhibitors, Matt. So you, of course, spent a lot of time thinking about BCL two family and and the interactions of this. So where where are we? What are you What are you hearing about? What are you thinking about in terms of the MCL one inhibitors appearing?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the next frontier after BTK inhibitor resistance is going to be venetoclax resistance and overcoming those mechanisms. And we've seen recent reports on the BCL2 mutations, but I do think functional resistance to venetoclax is also going to be important. And we have data to support that now that MCL1 uh, may play an important role in venetoclax resistance in CLL. So there's a number of direct MCL1 inhibitors that are in the clinic in various stages, early, early phase clinical trials where we have not seen data yet. Uh, you know There are some concerns around the possibility for cytopenias and cardiovascular toxicities based on some of the preclinical models. So I think a, a careful exploration of these drugs in the phase one setting is, is certainly important. Uh, but obviously, uh, an interesting next step, if they do prove to be safe, would be to then combine with venetoclax, uh, which could be a very potent way to, to kill CLL cells that are even becoming resistant to venetoclax. Uh, there's also indirect ways to inhibit MCL1, so for example, CDK inhibitors. An uh, example of one of those is verusaclib which is now in a, a phase one, two study. So a lot of different ways to approach that, but it's still early and we haven't seen a lot of data.
1: The German Lab study group, lots of studies ongoing. Lots of these studies are going to take a very long time to read out, but what, what What are we expecting to hear next uh, in terms of results or preliminary results from the German CLL study group? Anything coming close to readouts that you can hope to see in meetings coming forward?
0: Uh, yes, yeah,
2: so we'll probably have next year, um, beginning of next year, the readout of the CL13-OGAIA trial which we do together oh, yeah. with the with the Hoven and the Nordic group. Um, and so the the question is not so new because it's again comparing Venetoclax-based treatment versus chemimulotherapy. therapy, but um, Venetoclax plus Obinituzumab is now approved for all patients in Frontline, but in fact we do not have data on the fit and young patients. Um, so the the study will close that gap, and on the other hand, the study will address also the question. So it's not powered, but we also will see rituximab venetoclax versus obinutuzumab venetoclax, and also adding ibrutinib. So looking at how intensive we should, uh, we could modify the treatment, better antibody does that matter in combination with venetoclax, and uh, then with the next trial, the C17 trial. Um, as many other studies in the U.S. Um, comparing now novel combinations against each other. In Europe, we will do ibrutinib as continuous treatment versus venetoclax plus up versus ibrutinib um, venetoclax, and so two fixed duration treatments versus continuous treatment.
1: Wow, doesn't time go fast? So I think we've probably just about wrapped up uh, what was there. I think One of those years where nothing brand, brand new appeared on the scene, but not surprising if you consider what's been so new at the meetings we've seen over the last few years, but a lot of consolidation, a lot of new information. So I think all that remains for me now is to thank you, Barbara, uh, Susan, and and Matt for uh, your time uh, today uh, and the opportunity to have this discussion. I've certainly enjoyed it and to thank all of you for joining us for CLL sessions on VJ VJHEMONC. And we look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJHEMONC to join in the conversation and visit VJHEMONC.com for the latest updates in the field.